All right, let's return again. In fact, let's go to uh, uh, 2 Timothy 2.15. We'll start there, 2 Timothy 2.15. Second Timothy two fifteen. Two fifteen. Fifteen, yes, sir. I'll try not to mumble. Okay, so again we're uh, we're going through a course on effectual or effective Bible study. And if you think about uh, skills to learn, and, 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 and the word skill is an accurate one. Effective Bible study does not just happen. Uh, it doesn't just fall from the sky. You don't just feel what a text means. I mean, there's times where I think all of us, if you've been saved for a while, know the experience of passage of Scripture will just cut through you like a knife. And it's like it jumps off the page, and the application of that is just so poignant. I think all of us would say that there's also been times when we've hung our hat on a wrong interpretation. Ever done that? I mean, you ever thought about a Bible passage uh, and you, you know it and you've thought about it and you've applied it only to find out years later what you thought it means is not what it means at all? Uh, that's one of the... I don't know that there's any way to avoid it when you're called to preach and you start out young. The really only way to learn to preach is by doing it. And uh, most ministers would say, a lot of their earlier messages they hope burn and never be rediscovered because there's things they get off on and there's things and ways they interpret things and they later on go, oh, you know. And uh, I know I, I certainly had some of those. I did. In fact, the first time I ever preached, they videotaped it. Bless their souls. It was horrible. My mom, my mom keeps stuff. She probably still has that. I hope, I hope it's in the garbage. Um, it was bad. But anyways, we're going through steps to effective Bible study. We want to avoid that, um, but it takes effort. So, all right, 2 Timothy 2.15. We ended up, we ended up we, what we were talking about, just to bring us up to speed, is uh, the Lord, he said in the Sermon on the Mount, ye have heard that it was said, love your enemies, or love those that love you, and do what to your enemies? Hate. The Lord Jesus quoted that. And you say, well, what was he quoting? He actually wasn't quoting. The second half of that is not a specific reference. I mean, you may try to uh, uh, make that hate your enemies and the way they were to treat some of the other nations, but that came out of the Mosaic Law, and basically it was a rabbi's interpretation that they taught. The original passage, uh, love, love your neighbor as yourself, never said, oh, and hate your enemy. And so the Lord says, well, you've heard it taught this way, but I'm telling you, and of course he went on to describe more fully the character of God, and the definition of neighbor was far more generous than the Jews would have held to. They thought neighbor means the Jew living next door that I like, and everybody else is not my neighbor, therefore I hate their guts. Even the Jew on the other side of me that, that I don't happen to like. You remember the Lord uh, talking about the, the Good Samaritan? You remember that? Well, what precipitated that story? Here comes a smug question. Oh, and who is my neighbor? So he tells this story. Well, who is the neighbor? <laughs> right? The guy that acted in a certain way. 
So, all right, 2 Timothy 2, 1 through, uh, 2 Timothy 2, 15. Again, we're, we're talking about proper interpretation. We'll get more into that. The verse says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, this is a pastoral epistle, but this doesn't just apply to pastors. Let me just say something on that word study. We know the word study. That's actually not quite what that word means. When he says study to show yourself approved unto God, he's not saying uh, sit at a table with a stack of books. That includes that. The word study, in fact, he told Thessalonica, Paul did, study to be quiet, to do your own business. What does that mean? The word means to put in effort, to put in diligence, to do something about a situation. So he was telling them in that passage, learn how to live in simplicity, to mind your own business where you can and walk with God. Uh, I think all of us would agree the age we live in has gotten more and more complex. Simplicity is, simplicity is, a, is a rare thing anymore. It's very hard to get. Um, so here, what's he saying? Study. Put in effort to do what? To show thyself approved unto God. To present yourself approved unto God. Now, what is that saying? Obviously, it's not talking about salvation. He's not saying uh, put in effort to save yourself, at least in the sense of being justified. But he's saying put in effort so that you can present yourself increasingly, and especially at the last day before Christ, as a certain thing. And what's that thing? A workman that needeth not to be ashamed. In other words, if we don't want to sit and be ashamed before Christ for the the life we've lived, we have to put in effort as workmen. And uh, what, what does that effort lead to? Rightly dividing the word of truth. The idea is learning how to handle the Word of God effectively. Knowing how to apply what passages to what situations. Let me just give a side note here. This is one of the biggest... I should be careful making statements like that because I probably make them a lot, but there's a lot of of things like this. This is one of the biggest missing elements in church life uh, in America, probably across the world right now, one of the fruits of apostasy. You know what that is? Knowing how to take the scriptures and rightly apply them to given situations so that I can have a life that is pleasing to God. And by the way, that's why you see this explosion of things that even 100 years ago were taboo among Christians, that now all of a sudden they're okay. I mean, you've heard sentiments like that, haven't you? The Bible never says I shouldn't smoke marijuana. Well, does the Bible say, where, where, tell me, where's the verse that says you can't smoke marijuana? Where's the verse? Show me a verse. Show me, show me in the Ten Commandments where it says that. Well, the Bible, the Bible, so the Bible doesn't address that, right? The Bible never says, I can't, I can't drink alcohol all week. 
The Bible never says, thou shalt not smoke. Do you get where I'm going with this? Friends, the, the, all the statements I just made are extremely immature. All those statements are made by people who don't know how to handle the scriptures properly. What's my point? A great deal of what the Bible says is not specific command, it is principle information. It's gleaning information about God's character and desires, and I make proper application. It's like the whole discussion on abortion. I, I, I know the audience I have this morning, I don't need to defend that position, but we better be careful that we do know how, because there's no verse that says, thou shalt not commit abortion. It's a gathering of principles that lead to that conclusion. It's the same thing with determining the will of God for my life. Or, as a pastor, which direction philosophically are we going? How's that determined? It better be determined by what this book says. And it better be determined by rightly applying this book, like we talked about last time, if we ignore context and if we don't understand what different passages are saying, you can make the Bible say anything you want. Do you know, I, I actually could stand up here this morning and use Scripture to teach you that baptism is part of salvation. I would use it wrongly, but I could do it. I could use Scripture to teach you you can lose your salvation. I would have to use it wrongly, but I could do it. I could use the Bible to teach you a whole lot of very bad things. Take the Old Testament, bring it into the New. Ignore the context. That's where the prosperity gospel comes from. So what is needed is for you and I to be skilled at, at cutting straight paths, which is what that means. This is a sword, and uh, we better be equipped to know how to handle it. If we're going to be able to have any kind of discernment today at all, which is very, very needed. Remember, uh, Hebrews talks about uh, discernment is like a muscle. You have your senses exercised to discern good and evil. The more you lift those spiritual dumbbells, the more you see. The more you ignore what the Scriptures say, the more you walk into dimness. Scary stuff. But encouraging, though. Encouraging in that you and any one of us, any one of us can be a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed, who can rightly apply Scripture. And uh, when it comes, you know, you the off question, not just young people, but, but adults. You, well, this is the will of God. How do you know that? How do you know that? Is it only circumstance? Is it only certain doors have opened? Is that it? Is it only a subjective piece? Is that it? It's not enough. Now, there's times where biblically we're not in violation and we're waiting for providential doors to open, okay? And God will lead that way. But I'm saying if we're charting a course that's in violation of properly understood passages all across the Scriptures, and those mature believers you know who are telling you that this is a little shaky where you're standing, you ought to listen. Gotta listen. I like to ask people sometimes, what, what's your biblical reasoning process to get to this point? I like to ask myself that question, by the way, not just others. That's what uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2 is essentially teaching. 
All right, so anyway, we can, implying though, implied in that passage is we can understand God's intent for a passage as we devote ourselves to studying it. And again, uh, we're talking about the academic side of it a little bit. Uh, what's the spiritual side do it? And, and they're not in contradiction, but I'm saying they don't trump each other. It's not just pray a lot, submit to God, don't put any effort to know this book. You still won't know it. And it's not put in tons of effort to understand the Bible, but neglect devotion and uh, neglect prayer and neglect obedience, and you'll still be fine. And neither one of those is true. By the way, we're going to illustrate this when we get to it, but let me just, let me just uh, preface it by saying this. I hope you don't pay attention to them, but if you read the quotes of these church growth gurus, um, one thing they're constantly doing today, and I'm going to read a lot of quotes when we get to this, but what you're going to see, one of the major things they're doing is putting a division line between devotion and doctrine. And they're constantly emphasizing, if you have doctrine, you will not have devotion. And you have to pick between the two. And of course, words like passion and experiencing and desire, those are used in juxtaposition to sound doctrine. Well, what does that produce? It produces apostasy is what it produces. And it, it's really scary, some of these quotes. But there's a whole generation of Christians, by the way, they're buying into this. I have to pick between cold, academic, literal scholarship and passion for Jesus. It's all Jesus, not doctrine. Well, the problem is, what Jesus do you have? If you don't know this book well, you are worshiping a false Christ. So, they're not against each other, devotion and, and doctrine. In fact, you cannot have them without one another. They have to go together. All right, the process, though, of effective Bible study. And it is a step-by-step -step process to a point, just like any other activities that are designed to lead to a specific outcome. Think of, uh, I mean, you're going you're gonna to become an engineer or a pilot I said, I know Logan like, so does Jeremiah. Let's say Logan and Jeremiah start an air aircraft company. And it's called Flying by Faith, Not Sight. And they say, you know, here's the deal. We, we just have a passion for flying. And we don't really need all that academic stuff. Let our passion fly your plane. How, how many of you would buy a ticket on that? I, you couldn't, I wouldn't put my dog on that plane. <laughs> Unless I didn't like my dog. You, so you're going you're gonna to prepare for something that vital. What, you're going to put in sweat, toil, and effort. Right? You're going to learn. Uh, any of us, any of the jobs we do. How many of you just you fell into your job and the boss was happy to pay you and you knew nothing and learned nothing? How many of you say, that was me. I get paid to do absolutely nothing and I didn't have to learn a thing. None of us. It doesn't matter what you do. You learn. You put in effort. You, you make some mistakes. And you get up and you keep going. Why? Well, because you want a paycheck. Well, the same is true in a sense in our Bible study. We're going to make some mistakes. We're going to make some wrong applications. We're going to learn. We're going to uh, skin our knees, so to speak, as we're learning to walk in this process. But God designed the Bible not just to be understood, but to be applied to our life. It teaches us about Him, His love for us, the aspects of the relationship He's initiated with us. As we study the Bible, we learn of the great God and realize His power for growth. And that's where, again, Peter's last epistle, he starts with this. 
according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And he talks about how we have these exceeding great and precious promises whereby we can be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world through lust. By the way, that passage, 2 Peter 1, is one of the best places that show both sides of the a, a growth, Christian growth. He emphasizes the Scriptures, and this is a faith proposition, and it's God who ultimately does the work. But then he says, beside all this, giving all diligence, effort, add to. And then he begins to give this list. And, and the emphasis is you, you and I put in the work. God's given the promises. God's given His Word. But we are not going to come to maturity without tremendous effort, uh, particularly in the area of knowing the Scriptures. So if we're willing to move step by step, and by the way, one of the scary things he says there, but he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Now, is he say, well, the guy forgot he was ever saved? No. But the practical import of being one with Christ, being, uh, having a new birth, is lost on him. He's, he's walking around like this, and he keeps tripping, and he can't figure out why. Maybe he wants to blame it on everything else. Yeah, but the problem's him. Okay, so there's uh, three steps. Now, this is overly simplistic. There's a lot that goes into these three steps, but let me just give them. So we're going we're gonna to define the steps and consider them briefly. Um, and by the way, these three steps really apply when uh, teaching also. As a general rule, if you're teaching Bible lessons or preaching or whatever it is, uh, in a general sense, you're going to go through these. All right? Number one, and we're going to get to these in greater detail later on, but number one is observation. Observation. It's just seeing all that's in a passage. It's, uh, it's looking at the text as it is. Looking at the words in the passage. Uh, how they fit together to form a certain message. Um, you can look at the literature form depending on where you are. And, and I'll tell you, I'm not an expert on literature form. I don't look at a passage and go, wow, look at that pericope. Okay, yeah, I see some... Uh, you know, there's all these fancy words for that, and they have their place. So don't feel like you have to be an expert on, you know, ancient Near East language styles. But you can still observe this. You know, uh, for instance, every passage that you get to, if you, if you just sit and look at it, uh, and by the way, included in this observation is going to be what? The greater context. It's going to be seeing where this passage is in the book. And then what else? One of the reasons I keep going through the covenants and the dispensations, one of the reasons we've gone through those probably a dozen times in the last couple months, is part of this observation. All right, I'm looking at a passage, and I'm observing the structure and how it's written, and uh, you know, every most passages have a pretty clear tone. There's a mood that comes through. Uh, if you compare the book of Philippians with the book of Galatians. Vastly different. I like the way J. Vernon McGee said it. In Galatians, Paul has his war paint on. He, uh, no introduction. 
He just, I mean, no, no long introduction. He just blows into defense of the faith. Instantly, it's I marvel. How in the world did you go from the grace of Christ to a counterfeit gospel? What happened to you? That's, right, that's how he starts. A Philippians, the book of joy. <laughs> the kenosis passage of Christ. And by the way, joy from a man who's locked in a dungeon. At least a prison cell. So they have a tone. Um, but going out from that, you, you, you can come to a particular book, and, and, and if you're familiar with the dispensations walking through the Scriptures, okay, you think, all right, what time zone are we in? In other words, which age, which stewardship are we in? And understanding all of that, you can plug in where you are in the unfolding drama of God's plan, and you can figure out what that passage is actually talking about. But it has to start with observation. Um, and I will say this, most of the Bible study process takes place in the observation step. Most of what you're going to learn is going to take place there. It requires time and thought. How many of you would agree time and thought are not popular today? Um, again, there's nothing ungodly about uh, technology, but one of the ways it fights us. We're so used to things being quick. I mean, you can... Yeah, how many of you ever search the internet to research anything? Most of us. How many of you ever go past the first page of search results? Most of us don't. How many of you read the entire articles you're scanning through? Most of us don't. How many of you in the middle of researching that topic jump to other topics based on what's over here on the right? Most of us have done that. But now, is that, is that in itself wrong? No, but, but what that does is help us to learn to be very shallow readers and thinkers. I really think it's, it's helping program an entire generation to be told what to think. I'm convinced the only reason the major media is even in business is because of that. People like to be told what to think. So, it comes, when it comes to this, no ordinary book. There's a movement today. Well, in fact, it started. Uh, we'll get to it in our apostasy messages, but we're going we're gonna to simplify the Scripture. We're going to make it read like a newspaper. This isn't a newspaper. This isn't a magazine. This isn't a comic book. It's not a comedy book. It's not an entertainment book. It's not a novel. It's not a romance book. It's the inspired Word of God. It ought to be different than other books. But it takes discipline to stop and think. And uh, rushing the observation steps usually going to result in a bad interpretation. Now let me say this. Uh, what, what's the, where, where's the passage in the Bible that says, Thou shalt read through the Scriptures one time every year? Where's that verse found? Okay, It's not there. Is that a good general pattern? Sure, yeah, I, I would say it's a good general pattern. Do you have to do that? No? I'll tell you, I'll just give you, you know, let me, let me tell you where I'm at. You might think this is weird, maybe you think it's neat, I don't know, but it's true. I've been really captivated by the Lord's message to Ephesus, which we were in several weeks ago. Thou hast left thy first love, and I've been thinking about how, how, do, you, how do you cultivate a love for Christ himself? There's a lot of answers to that. But I think one way is to just 
reflectively stare at his life in the Gospels. Observe. And I am all the way through 13 chapters of Matthew already this year. That's not very fast. Doing that, that's an emphasis that I need. You may not need that right now. I do. So th- there's no pre-prescribed thing. And, and, and a lot of the old writers talked about the plow and the spade. And, I, and I, I agree with them. I think there needs to be a balance of being familiar with the bulk of the scriptures. You know, reading through, not necessarily with a goal of, of getting down deep, but just being familiar with the contents. And I think a lot of you have helped or would understand what I mean. You'd certain things come to mind. Oh, yeah, that, that happened here and that happened there. And oh, what about that one story? And you're familiar with it because you've been through the scriptures. But there's also the need to stop and dig in. And both of those, uh, both of those are, are very, very important. I remember some time ago, it was a bit of a curiosity to me, the discussion, but I see where the older gentleman met. I, we were at a, I don't even remember what it was. I think it was just a testimony meeting. We're just kind of talking through stuff and and one guy gets up and talks about uh, a guy he read, a, a guy he uh, he heard of that he's he has a Bible reading plan, and he reads through the Bible 27 times every year. And uh, yeah, it's, it, is that that's impressive? It is. Um, and and he was basically coming across like we all need to get on that plan and read through the Bible 27 times a year. And I remember this older pastor, stand older retired pastor, he's probably 80 years old. He stood up. And he just said, you know, he said, my concern with that direction would be penetration. At that speed, most people would never have the scriptures go in rather than just wash off of them. Okay, again, we have to work that out before the Lord. I know brethren who, I I know of pastors that read 17 to 20 chapters a day as a personal reading. Now they're fast readers. Um, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But I'm saying we all kind of have to find that balance. Um, all right, turn to Psalm 1. Let's just do an exercise. All right, Psalm 1. Psalm 1. All right, let's just, let's just uh, illustrate this. Psalm 1, I need a couple volunteers. How about Brian and Richard? You want to help me? All right, Brian, would you read all of Psalm 1 to us? The whole passage? Sure. Is the man that okay, I'm sorry, time out. Now, sorry about that. What we're going to just listen, observe, just observe. Think through what's being said. Okay, go ahead. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of the water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Oh, Oh, go ahead, sorry. Okay, thank you. Now, Richard, would you read the same passage again and listen and observe? Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. 
and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, but the one he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Okay, now everybody read it silently to themselves one more time, and then we're going to talk about it. done? All right, now, um, is there, did anybody notice anything on the third time they didn't notice the first? All right, let's, and I'm not giving you something you should or shouldn't have noticed, I'm just asking a general question. What, um, let's just make, all right, what's some observations? What are some things you notice just staring at that passage? What are some observations? There's a lot of them. Yes? Words jump out to me, like in verse 1. Ungodly not standeth in the way of sinners. You've got ungodly sinners, and then nor seated in the seat of the scornful. There's, I mean, there's, there's three indictments there mm -hmm. of people we need to stay away from. Yep. So, in other words, you're saying, if we want God's blessing, there are things God commands you not to do not just to do. Boy, is that a lost one today. Well, that's legalism, David. Is it? There are people that if you want to flourish spiritually, God tells you to get away from. That's true. Okay. What else? What other observations? Again, there's, there's probably not a wrong answer here. There's, there's lots of them. Yes? I see two very definitive uh, walkways of life. Yeah, you do. Yep. I guess is, is a major outline I see there. And does that idea, does that introduce the whole book of Psalms? I mean, is it an accident that, that this is the first song? This is a divine hymnal. I mean, this is what they sang. Does it introduce, is the rest of the Psalms elaborating on that? It, it, it absolutely is. All right, what else? What else? What other observations? Yeah. And it's unique. His fruit, his season. Right. Very, yeah, very good. What else? So I see in verse 3 and 4 that the righteous and God's, God's people stand like a tree. very firm. Yeah. With roots. It's a tree. It's not going anywhere. And then in verse 4, the ungodly are like the chaff. It's just the this is blow. Anywhere and everywhere. There's no root. There's no firmness. Yep. And there's the idea of value also in that. And it's not saying God doesn't care for the lost, but he's saying their life. Well, I mean, what was chaff? 
Chaff was the waste product of grain. It gone. I mean, they would, they, would, they would beat the grain out in the wind on purpose so that the chaff would just blow off and the, grain would, the heavy grain would fall to the ground. Um, what else? What other observations? I mean, maybe we're pushing on the door of application a little bit, but what, okay, the, the, the godly, the, the righteous are like a tree. So they become that way not just by what they don't do. Okay, here's another application. Okay, you, there are things that if you want to be blessed by God and, and grow, you, you, God says, don't do. There's a lot, in fact, the New Testament has a lot of those. Um, as we go through apostasy, we're going we're gonna to cover some of it. There are commandments. In fact, there's one at the end of this passage, from such turn away. You and I are commanded anything that produces that kind of shallow Christianity to turn our back on. We are commanded to. Not to do that is disobedience. Call it whatever you want. It's disobedience. It's Psalm 1. It's walking in the way of the ungodly. Okay, so there's things that the righteous shouldn't do if they want to flourish, but what, what should they do? It's not just what you don't do, but what's the proactive replacement? What, what is it? No, uh, verse 2. Think, now think about that. Uh, what does meditate mean? How many, how many, how many, how many, right? No, it's, the, it's actually, it's like, the word, it's like the concept of ruminating. It's like a cow chewing his cud. That's the word meditate. Um, and when, when is he supposed to meditate on that? Okay, so what does that mean? How... How many of you would say this doesn't just happen? And uh, boy, the battle of the mind. <whistles> okay. And so from there we make other inferences. Well, how do I, I I'm, I'm at work, you know, and I, I'm going to meditate on the scriptures. Well, you know, I'm not off over here looking at my Bible. In order to meditate on his word day and night, where does it have to be? It has to be in here. And uh, I'm deliberately calling, you know, it's interesting, a cow, when he chews his cud, he swallows it, and then he, and then he pulls it back up and chews. And spiritually, that's what we're doing. The passage is here, and then you pull it back up, and you're just chewing on it. And, and that's your combating of wrong thought processes. I'm thinking about the Word of God. Okay, any other observations? There's lots, there's, there's tons in here. Lots I'm missing. Anything else? Okay, anyway, I hope, again, the point of that is the more we chew on it and observe and try to think through, okay, who's writing this? Um, and you could really go broad on that. Okay, what was David's life like? Um, did, did he ever display this in his own walk? Oh, boy, did he. Um, all right, so uh, why would rushing through a large amount of Scripture, and, and I emphasize rushing, keep you from really understanding Against the idea of penetration. It, 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 I encourage read large sections, but make time for penetration too. Okay, let it let it get in there. Take time with it. I do now. Tozer A. W. Tozer drove me crazy sometimes with this quoting of the heretical Catholic mystics, and it, it just so. It, let me just say that as a disclaimer, as an enigma to me. But he did say a lot of good things, and I think he was a man who was a, a solid believer. But he said, he that would know God well must spend time with him, and there are no shortcuts. He's right. <laughs> he that would know God well must spend time with him. Uh, even in this busy age, there are no shortcuts. 
All right, so, the, so observations first, and then interpretation. Uh, the word interpretation may sound technical. I don't think it sounds that technical. You probably don't either. But basically, it just means explaining the meaning of the text. Now, interpretation, you ready for this? Is not open to opinion. I mean, it, you may say, well, I think this passage means that. There's nothing wrong with saying that. As long as you understand your opinion is not authoritative. In other words, when you think of Bible interpretation, we, we have got to keep this in mind because in our subjective, uh, we talked about bad literature teachers last time that basically teach Shakespeare. It's more important the meaning you put into Shakespeare than, than what Shakespeare actually meant. Uh, the liberals are doing the same with the Constitution. It's a living document. It's more important what you think it means than what the founders meant. In fact, they deride that as literalism and I mean, do you think when they wrote the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution that they thought, I think we're going to just write this and, and let everybody pick their own meaning? Are you kidding me? They would have looked at you and said, why would we do that? What, what would be the point of such a dumb exercise? So when you're thinking of a passage, get this axiom in there in your mind and don't forget it. There is one valid interpretation, one, of any given passage. One valid interpretation. Now, does that mean I always know what it is or you do? No. No, and I, there's plenty of passages I'll tell you I'm not sure about. But when I say I'm not sure about it, I'm not saying it means five different things depending on what you think it means or I think it means. There's one valid interpretation. Uh, it, we can't let it be colored by how offended we or someone else might become by the interpretation. And let me tell you something, that's one of the great challenges in preaching. I mean, if you're, one of the reasons, let me just say this, one of the reasons we're largely committed to expository preaching, what's that? That's where we go through books of the Bible and teach them all. Why would we, why, why be committed to that? Why, why do you think? Why are we committed to that here? As a general rule, topical, there's a place for it, but why are we committed to expository? To get context, definitely to get context, what we're talking about, what else? There's a lot of reasons. There's room for your own opinion, and it's not just what you think, but it's the, a balance issue. Like, I can, preach, I can preach something, let's say every Sunday, I preached on why Mormonism is bad. Every Sunday. I grew up Mormon, let's say I didn't, but let's say I grew up Mormon and, and I really had a, you know, and Mormonism is bad. But let's say every other Sunday I preached on that. A topical message on why Mormonism is bad. And you couldn't come to me and say, that's wrong to teach that. But my emphasis is wrong. Because that kind of weight is not put on Scripture on that one issue, right? Um, what it does is help us to deal with the whole counsel of God. Okay, the, let me just tell you something. The catalog of passages we went through last week. It, it, if you don't believe me, I could give you uh, materials to prove what I'm saying. The average church in America will not touch those passages with a 10-foot pole. And when you're not preaching expository, you don't have to. I mean, doesn't it sound... 
Today we're going to preach on a new you for a new year. Say we're going to start a new series, folks. Five ways to always wear a smile. Isn't that nice? And is it wrong to be renewed or to have a smile? No, but I'm saying we have to deal with all the counsel of God. And you get into interpretations of passages, and I'm telling you, some of what Paul said to Timothy, woo, you're quite aware interpreting that, that this is vastly unpopular. But the issue is, what is God saying and what does it mean? Okay, and out from that, what am I going to do about it? Um, we were going to turn there, but we're not going to. Um, 2 Kings 22, though, the life of Josiah. I mean, all of a sudden, you know, Josiah has a heart to obey the Lord, but all of a sudden they find the book of the Scriptures as they're going through. Imagine, people didn't have Bibles. And they find this book, and it ends up in Josiah's hands. Hey, we found this. And uh, Josiah starts reading through what the law actually said. And oh boy, did the bricks fall. And it gets worse. In fact, in that passage, they go to a prophetess, which again, to speaking of different eras, no, there's no prophetesses today in that sense. Um, a different discussion. But basically, she's saying that the wrath of God is just horrible against you, guys. You, you have utterly turned your back on God. And you look in Josiah's shoes and say, well, why wouldn't he be tempted to downplay or soften that a little? I mean, you're talking a cold turkey message to the people who hadn't heard the scriptures in years and years and years, all of a sudden dropping the law of Moses like a hammer. And in his shoes, it would have been easy to go, you know, maybe we'll kind of have a five-year plan in this. Kind of start with the easy stuff and see how the people take it, maybe go from there. No, he just, he dealt with it. So he humbly submits to the Word of God, and there's no evidence he tried to explain it away or misinterpret it intentionally. Now, accurate interpretation, again, we're going to say more on this later, requires tools. Now, I don't want to be unkind, but if you don't have any Bible study tools, it's not because they're not available. They are very available. And in an electronic age, a lot of them are free. But nobody can do the work for you. Nobody can be a diligent workman for you. I think of a job I was on years ago that uh, they were relating a story to me uh, that the previous employee, they hired this guy. I think it was out of a temp agency and there's a construction crew. And uh, do you have your own tools? Yep. And he shows up and he's wearing carpenter jeans with a loop and a hammer hanging in the loop. That's his tools. And uh, no... No chalk line, no square, no pencil, no knife, no nail bags, no cat's paw, on and on and on. Well, how effective was it? A guy could do one thing, swing a nail. It's all he could do. Uh, and if we're not careful, our Bible study can become that without the right tools. It can become very, very imbalanced. One thing, maybe. Um, so we need tools to guide us to the correct meaning of specific texts or specific words in the text. And since the Bible is written to cultures we don't fully understand, we need other tools to shed light on a passage's setting. And I thank God we have those. The Lord has providentially... I find this amazing, that even with all our technology, and which life is supposedly way easier than it's ever been, 
God has, listen, on purpose made it so that we still can't understand the scriptures very well without personal work. Isn't that amazing? I mean, somebody says, well, why, why do I have to do study on culture? I mean, why did he have to have it written in the Orient across the world? I mean, I was thinking of one cultural. Let me give you an example. Um, yesterday, in fact, the message I was listening to, when it says that, that he endured the cross, talk, talking about Christ despising the shame. What, what does that mean? We don't have a shame culture here. Uh, it, talk to Asian people, people from that part of the world, they're a shame culture. It's all about saving face. Uh, the Japanese samurais, what, what did they do when they committed something that was looked at as a grotesque offense? Remember what they did? Seppuku. Right? A samurai, would, he, he would take his dagger, jam it into his side, bring it all the way across and disembowel himself without even making a face, a grimace, a groan, or anything just to show you his honor was intact and this is who I really am. I'm going to die like this. Okay, so, so that shame culture, uh, by the way, in that shame culture, being undressed in public is still a shame, like it should be. Americans are proud of that. But in a shame culture, how humiliating is it to be hung on a cross, buck naked, as a convicted criminal? And it says that he despised it. He thought of that shame lightly because of what was coming afterwards. He ignored it. And so having some idea of the culture from which that comes helps us understand the meaning more deeply. And there's all kinds of those, but God has given it so we don't, just, we don't learn them by osmosis. We have the tools to dive into that and study and uh, historical books and things. And if anybody needs uh, some recommendations on that, he'd be glad to help. I don't know all of it, that's for sure. I'm still, my book collection is still growing. In fact, I have a list on my phone, more for my wife's benefit, I think, just as much mine, because she always wants to know what kind of gifts, and it's a book wish, wish list, and uh, it's growing a lot faster than it's being marked down, I'll tell you that much. Um, it's not a complaint, it's just fact. You know, I'm here and listen to different preaching, or run across a recommendation, and I'll just put it in there, I'll just write it down, just because I want to remember it later. So I'm still building my collection. All right, so you have interpretation and they get in trouble uh, interpreting when you move to applying a passage before you fully understand it. So in other words, a good way to tell, and we are almost done, a good way to tell if you really understand a passage is can you restate the passage using other words, can you state the passage and give what it's actually saying? And if you can't do that, you're probably not uh, interpreting it yet properly. Okay, then we move into application, uh, which uh, basically builds the bridge between knowing and doing, and we have to stop. We're going to get out of time. All right, so observation, the bulk of the time, there's a lot under that. Interpretation, what does this mean? And then, again, it doesn't stop there. It gets very practical. All right, what does this have to do with me? In other words, not... Not self-centeredness. Not it's all about me. I don't mean that. But what, knowing that this is the word of a sovereign God, the inspired, an inspired text. What am I going to do about it? How am I going to? How does my life have to adjust? Okay. Well, what am I going to do? Okay. So uh, we'll get into that more next time. All right. Any questions or comments? We'll be done.
All right, let's pray. Father, help us as we go through this. There's so much to be said. And Lord, you know, I'm, I'm learning. I'll never stop learning this. And Lord, I thank you that we'll never stop learning even in eternity. In fact, we'll learn more there than we ever knew here. We thank you for that. Help us not to not look at learning as a bad thing, but as a glorious opportunity to be more intimate with our God. And not based on our opinion, which is so faulty, but based on what you've revealed about yourself. Thank you for giving us truth. In Jesus' name, amen.